So this is a um, this is a time, brothers and sisters, when we are going to go uh, to the Word of God in Acts chapter seven, and we're going to continue our worship um, in in Acts or in Acts chapter seven um, with the preaching of God's Word. Before we do that, um, I kind of want to give you an update on my family, if I can, because you have prayed for them, uh, and I want you to keep praying. Um, many of you know that my, um, my father-in-law, Sandy's, Sandy's father, just a, a deep, sweet, sweet man of God, uh, went home to be with the Lord Tuesday night. He has a, uh, he has a, a, he's having a great day with his Savior. He used to say after a, uh, a good putt or a, a good game or a good meal, he'd just lean back and he'd say, man, this is living. I think he's saying that in a new and different way today. Wayne West was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful man. He was never wealthy. Um, He never commanded a lot of troops. He was CEO of a company that he started, but I think there were only two employees besides himself and one was his wife. He never owned a house at the beach or a house at the lake. And he did own a boat, but it was what he built. <laughs> but the impact of his life cannot be measured. He has left a huge hole um, in my life and in this earth. Um, my bride is grieving. COVID is a wicked, wicked, wicked thing. And um, for people to die alone, it's just wrong. Sandy's mom is in the hospital in Athens, Georgia, with COVID. And unless something changes, unless the Lord does some miracle, she will soon join her husband and stand before Jesus in a new and beautiful way. And I know that's what she wants. She longs for that. Um, And I want her to have that. But when she goes, the hole that she will leave also cannot be measured. Um, My bride, uh, Sandy, is a daddy's girl. She is missing her daddy horribly. Like her mom, she's an artist. And they have so much in common the way they see beauty on the earth. Uh, Sandy is on her way to Athens to see if she can somehow see her mom. If her mom leaves the hospital, she'll leave it under hospice care. Please pray for my beloved as she travels. Pray also for my children that are scattered across the southeast and uh, having to grieve alone a man that they see as a hero, rightfully. Uh, And pray for me also if you think of it. Pray for Abby and Isaac. They have to put up with me alone for the next few days. We have the hope of heaven and that can never be taken away. This passage... um,
Let's, can we pray? Father, I need you. Lord, my heart is broken. My bride's heart is so broken. Lord, I need you. We need you. Father, this is your word that you have appointed for this day to be preached. And I pray that by your grace, you'll be honored and glorified in it. Father, that you would open up our hearts and transform us by your amazing grace. Lord, do a work in us, your people, your children. And keep my beloved safe as she travels. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in this passage in Acts chapter 7, and we're going to turn there, and we're going to go there, and we're going to spend our time there. Um, it's, a, um, it's a passage that, um, um, that is long, where Stephen, uh, one of our first seven deacons in, the, in, the, in Scripture, um, he takes uh, all of the Old Testament, and he condenses it down to 53 verses. So those of you that are fans of uh, verse-by-verse or word-by-word exposition, you're going to be very disappointed with Stephen. But that's the way God called him to do that, and it's a good way. You're going to be disappointed in me also because I'm not going to give you verse-by-verse or word-by-word exposition of 53 verses. We're not going to do that. But as Stephen um, gave an overview, a summary of a summary of a summary of the Old Testament and how it points towards Jesus. We're gonna do something similar. We're gonna take a summary of what Stephen does, as John Piper did when he preached this passage, and we're going to get an overview of this passage and how it points towards Jesus and how God would have us through this sermon Stephen preached to point our hearts and minds towards Jesus Christ as our only King. We're going to start reading in verse 30 of chapter 7 and read down through verse 53. So join me, if you will, in the word of God. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, that is to Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. May God bless the reading and hearing and teaching of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. Amen. Before we turn and unpack um, Acts chapter 7, I want us to take a bit and talk about uh, January 6th. Okay? We're going to spend a little bit of time on January 6th. There's a connection here with Acts chapter 7. We need to see that. See, Acts chapter 7 reveals for us the outcome of leaders and followers. Leaders and followers. That's what you had in Acts 7. You had Stephen. Then you had religious leaders facing him. And you had a group of followers behind the religious leaders. And off to the side, you had Saul, later to become Paul. Acts 7 reveals for us what happens when these leaders and followers that misuse God's word, twist God's word, and take God's word out of context. In Acts chapter 7, a man, Stephen, was killed by a mob. A mob led by leaders that had twisted God's word. Now, the, the, the outcome, the further outcome of Acts chapter 7 um, is, is the dispersion of the church, the explosion of the church around the world. It's fulfilling of, of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The outcome on that day is that a man was killed. Stephen was killed because he drew a hard line. He drew a hard line publicly and in blood. That Jesus Christ is the only king. That Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him. The gathered mob killed him. 
the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Over the years, months, and recent weeks, the misuse of God's word, the misuse of his name, the twisting of his word, the taking his word out of context has resulted in the worship of political leaders as some type of savior. If we have this leader or that leader or this party or that party, we will be saved. My friends, there is only one Savior. His name is Jesus. He will not share his glory with another, ever. Worship of a leader is different than following a leader. We worship a leader, an idol, a person. When we worship such, we give our lives over to that individual or to that idol. We subject the things in our life, our families, to that leader, to whatever we worship. We even subject our grasp of Jesus Christ to the idols and peoples and ideologies that we worship. On January 6th, that worship of leaders turned some followers into rioters. Not all. But some. Writers that some used God's name in vain and twisted his word and misused his word, took his word out of context to somehow justify what they were doing. But that's what happens when we worship anyone other than Christ. I do it. And so do you. My friends, there's only one Savior. There is only one Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is none other. There is none other. He will not share his glory with any other. What does that mean for us as we approach January 20th, Wednesday? Well, David spoke of it a few minutes ago. We pray. So I implore you, Church of Jesus Christ, to pray. There is only one God. To him we pray. James tells us that the fervent, effective prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Church, I implore you to be about the business of fervently praying to the one true king. Pray today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and keep praying. The prayers of a righteous person availeth much. What does that have to do with Acts chapter 7? Acts chapter 7 reminds us that God says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about much more than a blessing of a nation. It goes far beyond any nation. God is about the business of building up an eternal kingdom purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
and he will not be belittled to the place where his name is used in vain for a nation or a person. He is God and there is none other. In Acts chapter 7, you see religious leaders moving in a different direction. As they had put their faith in the land, the law, and the temple. And the only way to God was if you obeyed the law as they wrote it. In the land of Israel alone. And you worshipped in the temple in the way they prescribed. Otherwise, you would not have God. Stephen had a choice on that day. In verse 1 of Acts chapter 7, they said, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Not is what you said true. They don't care if what Stephen said is true. What they care about is did Stephen say it? Because if Stephen said it, they're going to kill him. The one that is desiring to be worshipped doesn't care what the truth is. He cares that you believe something different, that you put your faith in something different than in him. The religious leaders and the followers of that day were ready to kill Stephen if he did not succumb to their way of thinking. Would he give in to fear? Would he give in to fear of Um, the religious leaders that were there before him, would he give it to the fear of the mob who were picking up stones to stone him? You ever been stoned? I don't think so. Uh, You ever been hit with a rock? Some of you have. Some of you have. I have. I remember when I was about seven or eight years old, I'm playing baseball. uh, Back when we used to play baseball outside, not on little, you know, games. We play baseball outside. Uh, It's often in somebody's backyard. You know, if the ball went over the neighbor's fence where the mean dog was, it was an automatic out, that kind of baseball. On this particular day, um, Branch was out at second, and I was a second baseman, and so I knew he was out. Well, Branch proclaimed that he was safe, and he was still out. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to play back the reel of that movie, and he'll know. Well, you know, seven or eight-year-old boys... You're out, you're safe, you're out, I'm safe, you're out, I'm safe. So we decided to settle it with a tussle in the dust. Isn't that what you do? Well, that's what we did anyway. We settled it with a tussle in the dust. I don't know who won the fight, but I know the branch was out. Later on, after the game was over, branch, branch picks up a rock about this big. It seemed like it was this big, but it was probably only about that big because we were little and our hands were little. And he hummed it at me and it connected right here. And it hurt. It hurt bad. You know, it was blood gushing. Okay, there was a scratch, but it hurt. Um, your mom's reaction was, well, you shouldn't have been fighting. <laughs> Mothers don't get it. <laughs> what the crowd behind the religious leaders were picking up weren't little pebbles. They were rocks and stones and boulders with which they could kill a man. And Stephen has seen a stoning. He knows what stonings look like. He knows what's coming if he doesn't give in to the religious leaders. And still he stands his ground because of his faith in Christ and Christ alone. You know, you and I like to think that probably that we're like Stephen, right? I want to be like Stephen. Stand my ground. The reality is that we're often like the stoners. We're like the religious leaders. I am, and so are you. 
in any given day. If you're like me, it could be any given moment. It could be in the same moment, the same sentence. Where we act like religious leaders and followers and we act like Stephen. One moment our faith is in Christ and Christ alone. And the next moment we've given in to our desire for comfort, our desire for wealth, our desire for health, our desire for life, our desire for reputation, our desire to be liked. And we love those things more than we love Jesus Christ. I do it and so do you. That's why we need Jesus. My friends, Jesus is so much bigger and better than any nation, any land, any set of laws, or any temple. And Stephen is willing to die for Jesus. Stephen, as he's proclaiming this gospel to this group of religious leaders and followers, he, don't, he opens up with a summary of the Old Testament. He takes it back and he picks up the narrative with Abraham. In verses 2 through 8 of the passage, he speaks of Abraham and the promise that Abraham had been given, that he would be a father of many nations. Abraham had a covenant promise. He doesn't say you'll be the father of this nation. He said, God tells Abraham in Genesis, you're going to be the father of many nations, more numerous than the sands on the shore, the stars in the sky. You're going to be the father of many nations. Many people are going to come to know the father. Now listen, Abraham didn't have that covenant promise because he was good. Abraham wasn't good. There was nothing about Abraham where you want to look at your sons and say, hey, son, be like Father Abraham. There's nothing about Abraham that you, you want to look at your daughters and say, hey, you need to mar marry a guy like Abraham. Abraham tried to give away his wife twice, twice to save his own skin. Abraham and Stephen are light years apart in that way. It wasn't Abraham's goodness that made him the father of many nations. Genesis tells us, Romans and Galatians agree that it, that it was his, his faith, his belief, that Abraham believed and that was credited to him as righteousness. He believed, he had faith in God. He knew he wasn't good enough, but he believed that God would keep his promise. And so he, he circumcised himself, his sons. Uh, he circumcised Isaac, circumcised Jacob. And the passage tells us that in verse 7 and verse 8 of, of Acts chapter 7. Uh, and then he goes on to Acts chapter 51. And, and um, Stephen makes this connection, Acts 7 verse 51. Stephen makes a connection for those that are listening to him regarding Abraham and their own hearts and ears. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He's looking at them and he's reminding them, look, Abraham was circumcised because he believed God. He had a covenant promise. But you, you don't hear God's covenant promise as it's being proclaimed to you that the covenant promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You don't hear it in your hearts. You don't believe it. You are uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You're not a part of this covenant promise. Well, that just made him mad, right? For them to believe Abraham would mean that they would have to give in to Christ. He goes from, from Abraham to Joe, Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a deliverer. He's betrayed by his brothers. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Betrayed by others? He's betrayed by his brothers. They throw him in a pit because they're jealous. They take sibling rivalry to a new extreme. He goes from there to Egypt as he's sold into slavery. He grows up there in Egypt for a while. He's, he spends two years in prison because he stood tall for Jesus Christ. After coming out of that because of a dream he had, he, 
um, he gathers grain for several years because of the coming famine. And he stores it up. And he's used by God as a deliverer for the people of Israel, right? Well, for the people of Egypt. The people of Egypt. For these that are in this crowd, these religious leaders and the followers, they're not on board with that. They don't want Egypt saved. They don't want any nation saved except Israel. But God uses Joseph to save the nation of Egypt as well as Israel. When Jacob uh, brings his sons, the rest of his brood, or as Bridget Johnson refers to them, his circus, he brings his circus into the crowd or in, into the country to Egypt that they too might be, be saved. They lived there for 400 years. Joseph is a type of deliverer, and because of God's work through Joseph, the covenant promise continues. He brings us to Moses in verse 30 of chapter 7. This Moses that, you know, received the, the law of God on Mount Sinai. This Moses. This Moses has come to a burning bush in verse 33, 34 of chapter 7. And God tells Moses, I'm sending you. You will be a deliverer. Moses is a type of Christ. And that's the point that Stephen is making to these religious leaders. Moses, this one you, you pretend to follow, he points to Jesus Christ. He is a deliverer. But just as you rejected him, so you rejected Jesus Christ. He goes on down in verse, um, verse 38 to 41 of Acts 7. And he speaks to them of Moses receiving the law and how they had rejected even the law. <laughs> now, see, they wouldn't say that. These religious leaders would proclaim, we keep the law. You're the one that's breaking the law. You're, we keep the law. The law that they were keeping was the law that they had made up. They had taken, for example, the fourth commandment. Do you remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? That one? They had taken it and they had uh, added 1,521 different minutia laws to it on how you were supposed to keep the, the fourth commandment. A politician in D.C. couldn't have done a better job. They take it and they made it so minute that you couldn't even spit on the Sabbath. Because if you spit on the Sabbath, it might land on some dust and then you're making mud. And that's against the law because you're working if you're making mud because you use mud to make bricks. These guys could stretch it. They've made up all these, these other laws, and Stephen is making sure that they understand that even though they proclaim to keep the law, they have rejected it. They've rejected Abraham. They've rejected Joseph. They've rejected Moses. They've rejected the law. And then he goes into the temple. In verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Now, in the mindset of these religious leaders and their followers, God is extremely distant. God is not personal. God is not incarnate. Incarnate in the flesh. God is not incarnate. God is not personal. God is somewhere distant. But God does somehow dwell in this house that they've made. This is what God says in verse 49. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now we need to read this with a bit of sarcasm. This next question. God's saying, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? That's not what he's saying. It's not like that. It's, a, it's with a, a, a tinge of, of sarcasm. What kind of house could you, people that have made, what kind of house could you build for me? Heaven 
is my throne. The earth is my footstool, and you're going to build a house that I can dwell in? I do not dwell in a house made by hands. My hands have made all these things. Do you not get it? And Stephen is reminding these, uh, these religious leaders, these followers, God doesn't fit in your house. He doesn't fit in your land that you don't live in it well anyway. He doesn't fit in the law that you don't keep. And he doesn't fit, fit in this house that is made by your hands. And then he comes down and he gives them this indictment, you stiff-necked people. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the temple, they all point to Jesus Christ. But for these religious leaders and followers to believe that, right? For them to believe that, that these things point to Jesus means that they've got to suddenly believe Jesus and trust him for eternal life. And that removes all of their control. That's the number one reason that you and I turn away from Christ when we turn away from Christ. Not if, but when. Maybe in little ways, maybe in large ways, but when we quit focusing and following Christ and begin to focus and follow the ways of the world or our own idols that our own heart has created, as Calvin says, our our hearts Our hearts are idol factories. When we begin to follow those things, it's because we we are rejecting Christ because we want to control ourselves. Just as Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They're stiff-necked people is the indictment that Stephen gives them. God is not distant, though. He is not someone that can live in a house, and he is not distant. He is God incarnate. Back up to John chapter 1. In verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word was God, okay? Now go down with me to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. Jesus Christ is the Word became flesh, incarnate, God incarnate. He lives there with them, and the religious leaders can't stand that. That God would be personal is something they have no place for in their thinking. But Jesus was very clear, wasn't he? I no longer call you servant, but friends. He's not just personal, God incarnate, but he's, he's a friend. Paul refers to Jesus and us as co-heirs. My friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not that God is some distant God, but that you have Jesus Christ as a co-heir, that God is your father. Is he holy? Yes. Is he your Abba, Papa, Father? Yes. Yes. Is Jesus your King and your Savior? Yes. Is Jesus a friend? Yes. Yes. Is Jesus the, the one that comes forth on the, the, the horse, uh, you know, in the last days of judgment? Yes. Is he also the one that kneels down in the dust and spiritually embraces the woman caught in adultery? Yes. Yes. God is not distant. God is God incarnate. If we... There's no way that we can be good enough. There's no way we could be good enough to somehow earn God's favor. If we could be good enough to earn God's favor, the religious leaders, those followers, you and I, if we could be good enough to earn God's favor, the God's plan was cruel 
It was cruel that he would kill his own son if there was some other way. Not only was it cruel, but it was stupid. Just plain stupid, beyond foolish. The truth is that there is nothing that you and I can do to earn God's favor. We have to have Jesus Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one that comes to the Father but through him. Jesus Christ is far better than any religious, than anything any religious leaders could dream up, than anything that all of you and I could dream up together. Jesus is far greater, far better than all of that. And the impact of Jesus Christ goes far beyond anything that we can imagine. Let's look at his impact because it, not only was their understanding of who God was very different, but the impact of God was very different. The source of, of God's impact, for example, for the religious leader in that day that were speaking to Stephen, the source of God's impact dealt with the land that they were dwelling in, the law that they were keeping in the temple where they were worshiping, worshiping in the way that they prescribed that you worship in the temple, keeping the law as they had manipulated it in the land and the boundaries that had been drawn. If you do that, then you have God's blessing. If you're not keeping all of that, then you don't have God's blessing. God had said differently through Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and the religious leaders couldn't handle that. The source of God's impact, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is God himself. But it's the blood of Jesus Christ that has saved you from your sin. It is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that lives in you. My friends, listen. If the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives in you, then you are no longer bound to sin. You are free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Paul, in the book of Galatians, it is for freedom. You're free because the Holy Spirit has set you free. The power of God lives in you. You don't have to give in to sin any longer at all. That's the source of God's impact, is God himself. What a difference. The direction of God's, the direction of the impact for the religious leader, then and now, it's outward in. Uh, we, we've said um, that religion is man's futile attempt to reach God. Whereas Christianity is God's effectively reaching man through Jesus Christ. Religion, our futile attempt to reach God, Christianity, God effectively reaching man through Jesus Christ. Worlds apart. So the direction of the impact for the religious leaders, if we do the right thing, make the right choices, then our heart will be changed. For the believer in Jesus Christ, it is repentance and faith through Jesus Christ. As he redeems our heart, fills us with his spirit, and transforms us by his amazing grace. The depth of the impact is also very, very different. For the religious leader, the depth of the impact uh, of his God is only seen in this satisfaction. The satisfaction that he might have as his lust for power is realized or his lust for control or his lust for self-righteousness. When he begins to, have, to realize those things, then he has some sort of satisfaction. And that's the significance I mean, and that's the end point of all of the impact. For the one that is a believer in Jesus Christ, the depth of the impact is so much greater. We have this beautiful word, imputation. Many of you know what that means. Back then it was an accounting word uh, that meant it's reckoned from this account to that account. An accountant might say, I am imputing this fund over here. It's imputation. Um, I, don't, I don't know that accountants use that word anymore. If you're an accountant, you can tell me later if you do or not. I doubt it. So here's, here's what's beautiful about imputation. It means that your sin, your sin was reckoned to the account of Jesus Christ. 
that was imputed to him. Your sin, all of your sin, all of your sin past, all of your sin present, all of your sin future, it's given over to his shoulders, his soul, and he took it. He just took it. And he claims it as his own. And he takes it to the cross with him and he pays the penalty for all of that sin. Your sin has been imputed to him. Let me tell you the other side of that. We call it double imputation. Just as his sin was imputed to you, all of his righteousness is imputed to you. I mean, your sin's imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to you. All of it. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ if you're a believer in Christ. So that when God the Father looks at you, what he sees is someone that is in his eyes as righteous as Jesus Christ is. How do you get a grasp of that? Oh, Lord, make us humble. Our sin is far more wicked than we could ever imagine. But the grace of Jesus Christ is far greater than we could have ever hoped for. The location of the impact is also very different. For the, for the religious leaders that, that were speaking to Stephen, or for religious leaders today even, that are depending on, on their own efforts to reach God, the location of that impact is local. It's just, it's just them. In, in Jesus, though, it isn't limited to a nation. It isn't limited to a people group or a race or a tribe. It's not limited in that way. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. My friends, the day is going to come. The day is going to come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not limited to the Jew in Jerusalem and Israel on that day. And it is not limited to us here today. It goes far beyond our knowledge. Finally, the impact is different when it comes to eternity. If your relationship with God is dependent upon your works, that you have somehow earned favor with God, if it's up to you, then you can lose it just like that. If you get it, you can lose it. That's just, that's just the way it is. You build it, you can tear it down. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him. If you come through Jesus Christ, then you're his. He's the one that bought you, purchased you with his own blood. You belong to him, and only he can let you go. And he's very clear in John chapter 6 that no one can take you out of his hand. He says further in John chapter 6, no one will take you out of, no one can take you out of my Father's hand. Once you belong to him, you belong to him, and nothing, nothing can take you away from that. Not even a mob with a bunch of stones in their hands. I love the hymn that says it well. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Jesus Christ has a grip on you, Christian, and he will never let you go, ever. Not then, 
and not now. This incarnate impact is, is about so much more than you and I. It's about so much more than the immediate. For the religious leaders and the followers that were with him, they wanted Stephen to repent on that day and come back to their way of thinking. That the laws as they had twisted it and the land that they, that they called their home and the temple where they prescribed the worship, that everything would go according to their way of thinking on that day. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes far beyond that. My friends, Jesus Christ has saved your soul because he loves you. He is for you. But he does not intend that that gospel remain only with you. The church of Jesus Christ is the only institution that exists for its non-members. The gospel isn't meant to be kept by us. We're not meant to be a cup that's filled up. We're meant to be a pipeline where the gospel flows through. This is much more than a history lesson in Acts chapter 7. This is a declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a hinge pin for the book of Acts. Before Acts chapter 7, everything was Jerusalem. The church was in Jerusalem. Here it is several years later. Acts chapter 7 happens. Stephen is killed. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the church explodes and moves out beyond Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is where it turns and begins to move out from here. God gives us a warning through Stephen. Stephen's giving it to those individuals on that day, but it's a warning for us. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. My friends, do you resist the Holy Spirit? Do you resist the Holy Spirit? Are you uncircumcised in heart and ears? That is, do we not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and upon hearing it, do we reject it? It goes on in verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And, those, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Do we push down those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because it threatens our way of living? It threatens our comfort. Christ and Christ alone is our king. My friends, we like to think that we would all respond like Stephen. Right? But would we? Would we? Would you? Would you be like the mob behind the leaders, picking up stones? Would you be Saul off to the side, giving assent to what was happening? Would you be a distant observer, removing yourself from all of it and just hiding behind a clump of bushes or something just to see what's happening but refusing to take action? We know what we would do about what we have done. Stephen, he had made a habit of following Christ Jesus even in the face of danger. That's why he was elected as a deacon in Acts chapter 6. He was seen to be a man full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. A man of solid, godly character. The reality is that on any given day, you and I both, any given day, we choose the safety of comfort, finances, health, Life, reputation, friendship, the safety of family over Jesus Christ. I do it, so do you. We're all guilty of that. 
My friends, this is the culmination of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, or the hinge pin that, that takes it forward. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You don't have to give in to sin. We don't have to do that. I love the title of Nabo's sermon last week, Radically Unashamed. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God. It is the power of God for the salvation of every man, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. My friends, God intends for us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ far beyond ourselves, our families, our way of life, our comfort, our nation. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Stephen, like Paul, who would proclaim your gospel. Father, I pray for, for those that are here. Lord, that, you know, like me, sometimes we make choices that do not, they don't bring you honor and glory. Sometimes we make choices that... Uh, look more like someone that's hiding or someone that's fighting against you. Father, I pray that you transform us, that you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, Lord, and you make us radically unashamed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is not a believer yet, I pray that that changes right now. Lord, that they would look to you and say, Jesus, be my King, my Savior, and belong to you. Transform me, Lord Jesus. In the name of Christ, our King. Amen.